Turn to Revelation chapter 1. As we continue this morning our series called Apocalypse on the book of Revelation. Uh, as you're turning there, let me just do a quick review. What we've seen so far is that this is a revelation that God the Father gave to Jesus and Jesus gave to John by sending an angel to him. And then John gives the message to the churches and so it comes to us. Last week we saw these great statements about God the Trinity that come in the greeting. Along with the description of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on behalf of his people. The book is written by John, the same John who was a disciple of Jesus, who wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And this is written to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, letting them know what's about to happen and encouraging them to remain faithful. Now, by way of interpretation, we've said that the principle we want to keep in mind is that we want to let Scripture be our guide. This book is apocalyptic literature. John uses all kinds of signs and symbols to communicate the message. And it is chock full of references to the Old Testament. So throughout the series, we will be turning back to the Old Testament and other places in the New Testament to help us understand what John is saying. The theme of the book of Revelation, and this is where we part ways with popular interpretation of the book of Revelation today, the theme of the book is primarily the legal complaint that Jesus is bringing against Israel and Jerusalem because they have rejected him as Messiah and murdered him. Along with the judgment that actually follows from that, which comes in AD 70, that judgment takes the form of the Roman army destroying the city and the temple and all the suffering that goes along with it. Jesus judges them because they rejected him as Messiah and they murdered him. And we're going to continue to unpack that theme this morning. So here in the first three, works, or th first three weeks, we are moving very slowly. Okay, just a couple verses at a time. But you'll find that we have to move very quickly through the message today because verse 7 especially is just, it's loaded. It, it's, we have to see where the language comes from, but also because it's expressing the theme, we have to kind of get this big picture view of what is going on in Revelation. But we're right now laying the foundations kind of to understand the rest of the book. Now, beginning next week, we'll pick up the pace and move a bit more quickly. But this morning, we're going to look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. And we'll see there the theme of the entire book of Revelation. We're going to spend most of our time on verse 7, because that's really the theme verse for the whole book. But let's go ahead and read the first eight verses. So Revelation 1, starting in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known... By sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then our verses this morning. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, we've said that the theme is found in verse 7, and that the theme is Jesus bringing a legal complaint against Israel and Jerusalem because they've rejected him as Messiah and murdered him. And the judgments which then fall on Israel come as a result of this. Now, when in verse 7 we see that Jesus is coming with the clouds, 
that's telling us that he's coming in judgment. It's not a statement about the second coming. When in the future Jesus returns, that will happen, but that's not what's in view here. Every eye will see him. That simply means that this will be a public event. It's not something hidden away for just a few to see. But the phrase, every eye, is qualified then with the next phrase. It's limited. It's explained by the next phrase, even, or that is, those who pierced him. So those who will see him, those who pierced him, are the Jews who are responsible for his death. Those Jews who were living in Jesus' day who rejected him and murdered him. And the tribes of the earth, we saw earlier, literally this is the tribes of the land. That's the tribes of Israel. The land is the land of Israel. Okay, the earth here does not mean planet earth. If you look at the, the word, it's, it's a patch of dirt. In this one, it's Israel that's in view because that's where tribes are in the Bible. It's the 12 tribes of Israel. And they will wail or mourn because of this judgment. Now, in verse 7, we have two Old Testament verses that are being quoted together. Coming with the clouds is found in Daniel 7.13. Those who pierced him and they will mourn for him or they will wail for him are found in Zechariah 12.10. So we need to look at those passages to understand what these phrases are suggesting. Before we look at the quotes themselves, though, let me just deal with the phrase coming with the clouds. Okay, this is standard Old Testament language for God coming in judgment. It's like using a, a phrase like drop the hammer. Right? If, if someone's about to drop the hammer, we mean they're about to go all out. The phrase comes from the hammer on a gun dropping to fire around. But when we use the phrase, drop the hammer, we don't usually mean that there's a gun involved, although there might be. It's the same with coming with the clouds. That's not necessarily that there are clouds involved, though there may be. It's indicating judgment. Okay, and we looked at this in detail when we studied Matthew 24. If you want more detail on it, go back to Matthew 24. It was the last message in that series. You go about 35 minutes in, and that's where we talk about it. Um, but for now, let me just say, the Old Testament often speaks of God coming in judgment. Does he really need to come? I mean, God's everywhere. But when it's using language like that, it's telling us something. He's coming in judgment. The cloud represents his royal presence. So coming in the clouds indicates judgment of some kind, some kind of royal judgment being passed. When God came in judgment on Egypt a couple of hundred years before Christ, listen to how Isaiah talked about it. This is Isaiah 19.1, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within him within them. This is God coming in judgment on Egypt. It happened historically. It didn't involve him visibly coming on clouds, but the idea is that his royal presence is coming in judgment. Okay? That's how John is using Daniel 7 here, but it's even more specific than that. He is specifically, Jesus is specifically bringing judgment because he has now ascended to the throne and begins to exercise that authority as king, that royal authority that he has. So, turn with me to Daniel 7. Okay? Turn in your Bibles there. I'm, there's a couple places I'm going to have you turn this morning. This is one of them. We have to ask the question of how John uses these verses. There's two parts to this. So, what is the original context in Daniel? And then how does John use it here in Revelation? Daniel 7.13 is quoted uh, a couple of times in the New Testament, a couple of times in the Gospel of Mark, and it's referring specifically to the judgment of A.D. 70 when that happens. Now, if we go back to Daniel 7, what do we find? Well, this is, here in Daniel 7, we've got a vision of the four beasts that's given to Daniel. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Okay? Here's what Daniel says that he saw starting in Daniel 7, verse 9. 
As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. In a, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Then I looked, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So here we have the throne room of God as God sits in judgment. He's sitting in, in his court in judgment. And what we see is the judgment of these evil empires that are opposing God, represented by the beasts. Now look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So here we have the son of man coming with the clouds. Son of man is Jesus' favorite name for himself. Where is, in this verse, where is the son of man coming to? Is he coming to earth? No, he's coming up to the throne of the Ancient of Days, God the Father. This is an ascension scene. Look at verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So not only is this ascension, but it is enthronement. The Son of Man is given dominion and rule. He is given a kingdom. And in his kingdom are all people, nations, and languages, and they all serve him. And his kingdom is everlasting. It won't be destroyed. Then Daniel's given the interpretation. These beasts are evil empires that make war on God's people, and they prevail over God's people until, verse 22, go down to verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So notice that the Ancient of Days came in judgment. Judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and then the saints possessed the kingdom. When the Son of Man comes with the clouds, he is ascending and taking the throne and at the same time, God is executing judgment. He's coming in judgment. So in other words, the flip side of the ascension and enthronement of the Son of Man is the judgment of the evil empires that stood against God's people. Jesus takes the throne and exercises judgment against his enemies. That's the original context. Now, this happened when Jesus ascended after his resurrection. Mark 16, verse 19, tells us that the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Acts 1.9 says specifically that when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And in the context of Revelation 1, John uses this verse from Daniel to show that Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's been enthroned as king. He's ruler of kings on earth. In fact, the context of how John places this quote from Daniel tells us we should probably expect that the next thing we're going to see is that Jesus executes judgment on his enemies. And that's exactly what we find in the rest of the book of Revelation. Now... What about Zechariah chapter 12? You don't need to turn there this morning. This passage in Zechariah is difficult, and we're not going to get bogged down in the difficulties of it this morning. Instead, what I simply want to do is this. I want to show you that there is good reason to think that at some level, what is in view in Zechariah here is Jesus' death and the subsequent judgment on Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Whether that's the main thing that's in view 
or it's talking about historical events that the New Testament authors then use to describe those things in Jesus. We won't get into that this morning, but I think you'll at least see this is how John is using Zechariah 12.10. And I'll give you three reasons to think that. First of all, the surrounding context. When you read through Zechariah 9 through 14, all of those chapters, there are a number of things that all point forward to Jesus. His ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the judgment that follows. The second reason is how John uses this verse, Zechariah 12.10, elsewhere in his writings. And the third reason is how Jesus uses it. Okay, so here we go. Those three reasons. Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Okay. The surrounding chapters. I'm not going to take the time to show you all the verses. I'm just going to summarize the things that you find from chapter 9 to 14. Here's a few of the things you find. Jesus' triumphal entry. The verse about the king entering, riding on the donkey, Zechariah 9. The people being like sheep without a shepherd, which Matthew uses to describe why Jesus had compassion on the crowds. The ending or breaking of the covenant, and with it, the payment of 30 pieces of silver, which are then thrown into the temple and given to the potter. All of that is specifically there in Zechariah. Then we know in the story of Jesus, Judas does that. Judas receives 30 pieces of silver, casts it down in the temple, and the priests, because it's blood money, use it to buy the potter's field. We also see in Zechariah the city of Jerusalem under siege, which happens in A.D. 70. The opening of a fountain that takes away uncleanness. Jesus' blood is the fountain that takes away uncleanness. We see the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattered. When Jesus is crucified, the disciples scatter. We see the nations gathering to attack Jerusalem. We know from history that when the Roman army gathered around Jerusalem, they also called in armies from other places to help. We see the living water flowing out from Jerusalem. Jesus is the one who gives living water by the Spirit. The Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, beginning in Jerusalem, and then it goes out from there into the rest of the world. We see also in Zechariah that the Lord will be king over all the earth. Jesus is the one who has now been enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords. So all of that is in the chapters surrounding Zechariah 12.10. And it's all applied to Jesus' life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the judgment that he brings on Jerusalem. So that's the context. Now, how does John use Zechariah 12.10 elsewhere? One place. John 19, verse 37, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, John explains that none of his bones were broken so that prophecy would be fulfilled. And then he says, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So the idea of the one who is pierced speaking about the crucifixion is made explicit by John. So we've seen the context. We've seen how John uses the verse. Now how does Jesus read Zechariah 12.10? Well, we saw this when we went through Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and verse 30, Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, this is the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, as a side note, first of all, you may remember when we studied Matthew 24, we noted that this translation, like many of them, obscures what Jesus is saying by moving the words around in the sentence. Okay? What it literally says is, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Now, our translations rearrange it to make it sound like the sign is in heaven. It's not what the text says. Okay? It's not a sign that appears in heaven. It's a sign that appears in order to indicate that the Son of Man is in heaven. 
He's in heaven. He's on his throne. He's ascended to the throne, like Daniel 7.13 said. He's been given dominion and rule. And the sign that will demonstrate that is when he acts in judgment on Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Okay, second thing here, notice that Jesus combines Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah 12.10, just like John does in Revelation 1.7. These are the only two places in the Bible where these two verses are brought together like this. So that's a pretty good indicator that John is saying the same thing as Jesus. Jesus is talking about the judgment that he's going to bring against Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and then just four verses after this, do you remember what Jesus says? Truly I say to you, this generation, this generation, the people listening to me right now, will not pass away until all these things take place. Third, think about this for a minute. When Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, what we studied in Matthew 24, who was there? Only four people, okay? Mark 13 tells us, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? So Peter, James, John, and Andrew. John was present when Jesus taught this and when he brought these two verses together, Daniel 7.13, Zechariah 12.10. John was present for that. Now, next question. Which of the gospel writers include the Olivet Discourse in their account? Matthew, Mark, Luke, but not John. Why? Let me suggest to you, the book of Revelation is John's version of the Olivet Discourse. Now, John has been given visions that expand on it and, and put it in a more global context. We've got a lot more detail, and we're looking at it from a very different angle. But this is John's Olivet Discourse. The message is the same. And when you realize that, Revelation 1-7 becomes very clear. John's telling us that the message of this book is the coming judgment on Jerusalem and Israel because they rejected and murdered the Messiah. Now, We've done a bit of a deep dive here into verse 7 to understand what John is saying by looking at these two quotes. In just a minute, I'm going to take you to the Gospel of Matthew to show you how the storyline of the time leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and ascension is mirrored in the book of Revelation. Okay, but before we dig into that, let's take a brief intermission. Okay, let's zoom out for a minute. All right, and get more of a big picture idea of the theme of the book of Revelation. And I want to do that by thinking of the theme of unfaithfulness or adultery. So first of all, since much of the book of Revelation is explained in the language of the harlot and the bride, and since in the Old Testament God called himself Israel's husband, and he said that Israel was constantly committing adultery, Let's get a quick snapshot of what the Old Testament says about this marriage covenant between God and Israel. And I'm going to read to you from Leviticus 26. In this chapter, and we studied this in the recent past, we have blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. God had made a covenant with his people. He was their king and they were his subjects. He was their husband. They were his bride. And if they obey... Verse 9 says, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. But if they disobeyed, if they break this covenant, what then? Verse 18, and if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Verse 21, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 23 and 24, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Sevenfold judgment for their sins. And then verse 25, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. 
So this sevenfold discipline is vengeance for breaking the covenant. This is kind of like, this, this passage is kind of like a divine prenup. God's laying out ahead of time, okay, here's the, here's the marriage covenant, and, and if you break it, here's what's going to happen, okay? And then verses 27 and 28, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. What are the judgments in Revelation? Seven seals? Seven trumpets, seven bowls, sevenfold discipline for breaking the covenant. That's what we're going to be seeing. Now, what do the prophets say about this idea? Let me just give you one example. Let's take a quick look at Jeremiah. You don't have to turn there. Let me just walk you through some verses from Jeremiah 3 and then Jeremiah 31. The covenant with Israel is a marriage covenant, but Israel has been unfaithful. They've broken the covenant. Jeremiah 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 3. You have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. I don't understand the language there yet. Working on it. Not sure what the forehead deal is. But somehow it has to do with shame. But isn't it interesting then, when we get to the book of Revelation and you read Revelation 17, 15, talking about the judgment of the great prostitute, it says, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's, earth's abominations. Still in Jeremiah 3, verse 8, For all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. There's a divorce decree that God gives to Israel because they've been unfaithful. Now I jump over to Jeremiah 31. And these are familiar passages, but listen again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There it is again. It's a broken marriage covenant which is why God gave them the decree of divorce. The legal complaint that Jesus brings against Israel is that they've been unfaithful to the covenant. The covenant was a marriage covenant. And now, the ultimate act of unfaithfulness, they've rejected God, their husband, in the person of the Messiah, Jesus. How does that play out in the book of Revelation? Okay, so just listen for a minute. Big picture survey of Revelation. Revelation 1, we're introduced to the ruling and reigning Christ, and the theme of judgment is given. Revelation 2 and 3, we have letters to the seven churches that call for faithfulness. Jesus is going to act very soon to judge his enemy and vindicate his people. Revelation 4, we have God on his judicial throne. It's a throne room scene. And then Revelation 5, the sealed scroll, the legal document, the divorce decree, is presented. And who can open it? Only the Lamb, Jesus. So he takes the scroll and he begins opening the seals. And as each seal of the divorce decree is opened, the sevenfold judgment begins to roll out. Chapters 6 through 18, the judgments unfold. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And Jerusalem is pictured as Babylon, the great harlot. And in Revelation 18, we hear, fallen is Babylon. And then in Revelation 19, there's rejoicing in heaven because of this, followed by 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb taking his new bride, the church. And then in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, because old Jerusalem has been judged, the new Jerusalem appears like a bride adorned for her husband. The bride, the church, is the new Jerusalem, which has replaced the old Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem was divorced and judged for her unfaithfulness, but a new bride has taken her place, the new Jerusalem. That's the big picture. Jerusalem, Israel, is being judged for covenant unfaithfulness, for rejecting and murdering the Messiah. Now, I told you I want to take you on a journey through Matthew. I know this, is, this, this morning's message is long, I understand, it's recorded, so you can go back and what, what you zone out and miss, you can come back and catch later, okay? But here's what I want to do. It's going to be a really high-speed journey through the second half of the Gospel of Matthew. What I want to do is I want to show you that the story Matthew tells is completely consistent with the story that John is telling through the visions of Revelation. So what, what Jesus is saying is happening leading up to his death. And what happens afterwards is the same thing that John is saying is unfolding in the story of Revelation. There are a number of commentators that have been really helpful to me on Revelation already. One of the most helpful is Ken Gentry. Um, he's got several different books on Revelation, and a good portion of what I'm about to share with you is stuff that he pointed out. It's just connections between different passages of Scripture, but I want to give credit where credit is due. Here's how we'll do this. You're going to open your Bible to the book of Matthew, okay? And we'll start in Matthew 16, okay? So go ahead and turn there, Matthew 16. And I'm going to read verses from Matthew while you follow along. And we're just going to kind of skip through these chapters and drop in on a lot of different verses along the way. So this won't necessarily be logical order, but it's the order where it's chronological, the way Matthew tells the story. And after every verse or two that I read... I'm going to then read a verse or passage from Revelation that will be up on the PowerPoint. So you have Matthew in front of you, Revelation on the PowerPoint, and the goal is for you to see the correspondences between the two. Okay? I'll give a sentence or two of commentary just kind of as necessary, and we're going to move fast. You ready? All right, you're in Matthew 16. Look at verse 4. Jesus says of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who ask him for a sign, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Notice what he said this generation is, adulterous. Look down at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, and Jesus being killed are being connected here. Revelation 11:8. now, the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. What city is that? Where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem throughout Revelation is described in the language of the great cities and nations that have been God's enemies. Sodom, Egypt, Babylon. Describing the great harlot, in Revelation 17, verses 4 to 6, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The woman is Jerusalem, old covenant Israel. Jesus spoke of the chief priests trying to kill him. The woman here is in priestly colors. That's what she's wearing. And she's guilty of unfaithfulness and of killing Jesus' people. Okay, back in Matthew, verse six, or chapter 16, verses 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, Jesus says, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. 
the Jewish people who condemned Jesus will be repaid, John is saying. Jesus is saying. Matthew, now skip over to chapter 20. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. Okay, Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then go to Matthew 21, verse 12. Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus is here acting like a prophet. He is enacting the judgment that is going to be coming on the temple and on Jerusalem. We saw that in Matthew 24. Now look at Matthew 21, 19 to 21. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Okay, so he, Jesus is symbolically doing to the fig tree what he's doing to the temple. He came to the temple and inspected, looked for fruit. There wasn't any. He shows that by going to the fig tree and looking for fruit. There isn't any, and so the fig tree is judged. Same thing is going to happen to the temple and to Jerusalem. The idea of being thrown into the sea, the sea biblically is death, chaos. It's a place of judgment. And so this mountain is going to be thrown into the sea. Well, what mountain is in view? They are standing on the Mount of Olives across from, across the Kidron Valley from the temple. It's the temple mount that is in view as Jesus says this. This mountain cast into the sea, judged. Revelation 8 and verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Jerusalem is burned in the judgment of AD 7. It's destroyed, it's judged. Matthew 21, verses 33 to 45. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just look at it. It's the parable of the landowner whose tenants rebel against the owner. They reject or even kill the servants he sends. And when he sends his son, they kill him too, thinking they'll claim the land for their own. Verse 40, Jesus asks, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Notice the wording. When the owner comes, he executes judgment. Their answer, verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So they will die because they've been unfaithful to the owner and have rejected his messengers and his son and the vineyard will be taken away from them and given to other tenants. And in verse 43, Jesus makes it clear. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Israel is being put away and the church is being given the kingdom. Now look at Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Another parable about people being replaced. This time, they reject the wedding invitation for the king's son. And the king's response, verse 7, is the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. What happens in A.D. 70? Jesus sends an army and burns the city. Revelation 17 and verse 16, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. That's speaking of Babylon, which is Jerusalem. Matthew 23, just look at the heading. Seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. What does Revelation show us? The sevenfold judgment. Look specifically now at verse 35. On you may come 
all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Revelation 18, speaking of the harlot Babylon, which is Jerusalem, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Matthew 23, look at 37 and 38. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is rejected by them. And so their house, the temple, will be left desolate. Revelation 17, again, speaking of the harlot Babylon, which is Jerusalem, they will make her desolate. Now Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. Jesus is warning the people that are listening to him. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, or... If we were to read it in Luke's version, Luke says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he makes it much more clear for us, okay? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus is warning the people. When the time comes that Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, get out of Dodge, run up into the hills. It's not going to be pretty. Revelation 18, again, speaking of Jerusalem, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. God's faithful people are called out of Jerusalem, and they're called out of her so that they don't experience the judgment that is falling on her for her sins. Matthew 24, 30, we already looked at the idea that Jesus puts these two quotations, Daniel and Zechariah, together. In Revelation 1, our verse this morning, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now jump over to Matthew 26, first four verses. Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So Jesus connects the dots between Passover, his death, and the leaders who are responsible for it. And then later in the chapter, verses 17 to 31, we have the Last Supper, which is a Passover meal. And what do we find when we come to Revelation? Revelation 5, 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And about a dozen other places in Revelation, Jesus is described as the lamb. He's the Passover lamb who was slain. Matthew 26, look at verses 63 and 64. And the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now listen. But I tell you, from now on, you, and he's speaking to the high priest, the rulers, the leaders there, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's our verse this morning, Revelation 1-7. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Which ones? The ones Jesus said, those who pierced him. He said this to the high priest. Matthew 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Down to verse 20. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Notice what's happening. The leaders have been the ones driving this. Now they're inviting the people to participate. So it's not just the leaders, now it's the Jewish nation. Go down then to verse 25. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. They claim responsibility for crucifying Jesus. 
The theme of Revelation is that those who pierced him, the Jews, were responsible for the murder. That's why they received the judgment for his blood. They literally asked for it. Revelation 12.11 says, of Jesus' faithful followers, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. So the blood of Jesus is simultaneously the condemnation for the Jews and the victory for God's people. Now Matthew 27.51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Revelation 11.19 then God's temple in heaven was opened. The Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There was flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. And the last one, Matthew 27, 62 to 66. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Next week, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And listen, and I have the keys of death and Hades. They tried to seal it. Jesus has the keys. Hopefully that whirlwind tour, and by the way, I cut out half of it, helps you to see that the same exact storyline of judgment on Jerusalem and Israel for their rejection of the Messiah is the storyline that runs through the book of Revelation. It's communicated in a very different way. We're seeing it from a very different angle, but the message is the same. All right. Now verse 8. Halfway there. I told you this is going to be a long message, but I also promised that Revelation 1.8 would be short, and it, it is. <laughs> if verse 7 is the theme of Revelation, verse 8 is confirmation of this sure word from God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's three things said here about Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Our word in the English language, alphabet, comes from the Greek alphabet. The first letter is alpha, and the second letter is beta, alphabet. Well, the last letter in the Greek alphabet is omega. So Jesus is the beginning, alpha, and the end, omega. He's the beginning in that he's the origin of the new creation. We saw that last week. He's the firstborn of the new creation. He's the end in that he's the goal, the one toward whom everything is directed. It's all from him, to him, and through him. Number two, Jesus is the eternal Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And by the way, notice, it's not who is and who was and who will be. He's always the same. It's, we're not wondering what he will be. It's who is, who was, a same God in faithfulness, and who is to come in judgment. The God who's coming in judgment is the God who is and who was, and you've witnessed his history. You now have a sure word that he's coming. Okay? Who is and who was and who is to come. His word never changes. The comfort that his people have in that word, therefore, never changes. And third, Jesus is almighty. This word comes from the idea from the Old Testament that he's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He's all-powerful. He's bringing all things into subjection to himself. 
He is God's anointed king. He's the ruler of the nations. And when you put all three of these things together, you see that Jesus is the Lord of history. Everything is under his control. Everything is bringing him glory. God's purposes for all things are brought about by Jesus. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the destiny of the nations, and he knows the number of the hairs on your head. The same Jesus who rules the nations is, if you belong to him, your savior and friend. Jesus brings judgment on Jerusalem and Israel for their unfaithfulness. So what about you? Are you faithful or unfaithful? See, on our own, we're unfaithful and we're deserving of God's judgment. But in Christ, God sees us as faithful. The faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ is given to us. And that means we no longer face God's judgment. The judgment that unfolds in Revelation is for God's enemies, but God has called us friends. Not only do we no longer face his judgment, but we're his bride. We're the ones he loves. We're the ones for whom he laid down his life. And that makes the book of Revelation a book of comfort for those who belong to Jesus in the middle of a world that is in rebellion against him. We can have the confidence that in the end, Jesus wins, and as his people, we will be with him forever. Lord, as we have spent time looking at these words this morning from Revelation 1. I am um, just again overwhelmed with who you are. You're the one who has the power of life in himself. You hold the keys of death. And, and we see that in that you rose from the dead, ascended and took the throne. But that also within it holds a promise for us because we too will face death, but you hold the keys. And as your people, we know that you love us, that you've called us friends, that you have the keys to unlock death for us, to bring us for all of eternity together with you as your bride so that we as your people are in your presence and worshiping you forever. May that not just be a story that the Bible tells or something that is way off in the distant future, but it may be a future reality that breaks into our existence today and makes a difference in how we live. Give us confidence and hope and peace because you are the one who holds the keys. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.